0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to America's Web Radio. And it's time for one of our favorite shows on America's Web Radio. And that's Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we've got Lieutenant Colonel Retired Phil Farsberg on the line with us. And we'll start the show very shortly but as we've gotten in the habit of doing whenever it's david's pick and and a show on the military we uh we have a memorial page our home page basically on our website you can go there and uh see that it's dedicated to J. roy ritchie uh he was a agent orange victim and uh was my best friend and roommate through college so We do that. We uh, start our shows with a silent prayer for all of our friends that have given the ultimate sacrifice, our brothers and sisters that are still in, and those future brothers and sisters. So we'll be back with Phil in just about one minute, and then we'll go to my favorite thing, the cadence call. We'll be back right after this. Thank mm-hmm. you. Okay and uh let's go to our little this is a morning rain morning rain and run. Hey
0: I feel all right now Hey I feel all right now Do you feel like I do right now Do you feel like I do right now Motivate Motivate
1: Rockster Rockster Okay and uh we love those cadence calls or Jodis, as some folks call them and um, it brings back actually fond memories for me I I enjoyed my, my basic and my AIT in a beautiful area in the United States called Fort Ord, California so with that let's go to Lieutenant Colonel retired Phil Farsberg Phil good morning or good afternoon now
0: hey good afternoon David it's good to be with you again I uh I had the opportunity to visit Fort Ord uh before I went in the army. My brother was actually serving in the army there and I get to spend about a week there with him. a beautiful beautiful place. But it's all gone now.
1: It's all gone now. All uh I guess they, they took all of the uh World War 2 barracks down and uh the matchstick stick jungle as we called it. Um uh, but I I guess they did, and they turned it into a university, correct?
0: I don't know what's there now. I know uh, the real estate developers were big-time... Well, uh,
1: uh, oh, I bet they were falling all over themselves.
0: Yeah, and they were drooling until they discovered the permanent dotted area uh, at the impact uh, area on the range. So <laughs> I, I don't know what they ever did about that.
1: You know, that's... Uh that's where I was on the on the range, and we quali as a eleven Bravo. We qualified on everything that that they had at the time, and this was nineteen seventy. And uh, with my luck, you know, ready on the right, ready on the left, commence firing, and um, I pushed the trigger on my law, and nothing happened, and. Uh, I kept waiting for it to take off, and it didn't take off. And so uh, at least I made it through it. And, uh, and then they took that law very gingerly out to where the tank was that we were shooting at or supposed to shoot at and uh, blew it up. And I'm not even sure how they blew it up. But there were they, you know, people can, if they haven't been there and done that, And this goes for, you know, everything else, be it Desert Shield, Desert Storm, but I I have to salute the military, for they have an answer to just about everything, and uh, they know what they're doing. The uh, NCOs, in my case, knew what they were doing, and uh, nothing happened, which I was very glad of, too, but, uh, you know, they, they came right up to me, and or right, not behind me, but up to me, and told me what to do, and I did it, and and that was the end of the story. But uh, yeah, and we we used to our range faced the Pacific, and uh, that's that's where we would fire is towards the Pacific, and uh, it, but it was beautiful. We we wrote, we watched uh, uh, oh one of the big car races, I sat on the side of a hill and watched it, uh, and it was that, that was the closest touch to feeling like I was almost home, watching a race from miles and miles away, but still it felt like uh, it was part of home, but it was a beautiful fort, and uh, I'm sorry that, uh, well I'm glad we don't need it, but I'm sorry they had to shut it down like they did. And I, I do believe that they turned it into uh, some type of a university. And uh, if it's like the other universities, they're probably, I hope the ghosts are bothering them.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> I, and, you know, uh, I also recall at the same time uh, we were visiting my brother out there in California, we took a trip up to uh, the Presidio, mm-hmm. in San Francisco, and uh, I was about crying when they got rid of that, because I thought you'll, you'll never get real estate like that back for Department of Defense ever again.
1: Nope.
0: They'll be happy to give you some, you know, dairy land or whatever, yeah. but uh, you, you're not going to get anything near uh, Presidio. I mean,
1: that's... Uh, no.
0: Dogs and soldiers not allowed in here.
1: <laughs> that's right. You know, they... Uh other thing was I'd, on the weekends I would generally go uh, well I generally would go to Salinas California because I had friends there and um, that was my first introduction to Hell's Angels and uh, they were Did you join? <laughs> Listen I'm so small they would have laughed at me walking up the block you know <laughs> um, but no I, I did not join and they're, they're every bit as mean looking as they are mean I guess but uh, this was uh, like I said back in the 70's and and sort of their heyday I guess but uh, the friends that I had there told me now you can look at them as we're driving up towards them but you don't stare at them and you don't look at them as you're going by you just keep looking forward and uh, (laughs) yes sir that's what I did but it was I I uh, I totally enjoyed Fort Ord and uh, and I know the Presidio well or not well but I know what you're talking about uh, about the Presidio and um, and there's just a lot of beautiful areas there around the Monterey Peninsula and um, some of them like or liked soldiers from Ord and some of them didn't and uh, we uh, I had some different experiences and and i like monterey as a matter of fact and the fisher fisherman's wharf i believe it was yeah so Uh,
0: there's a lot of uh a lot of beautiful countryside up that way
1: oh yeah and uh carmel you can't beat i don't think carmel by the sea yep beautiful absolutely beautiful and i can understand why clint eastwood would want to be mayor i'd like to be mayor (laughs) They'd, I wasn't offered the job, but I'd still like to have been. But anyway, so let's talk about I, one, the one thing that I, I want to mention, and I, I mentioned this to you the other day, is that if folks are listening that are suffering from PTSD, particularly the fact if you can't sleep at night, we're going to be coming out with an announcement very shortly, and this is a proven product. It, You know, the doctor that's been working on it, Uh, has over a thousand different uh, case studies that he's done and, and it's worked it's not a cure for PTSD it just enables the person that has PTSD to get a good night's sleep and why is this important? because we're losing 22 veterans that have PTSD to suicide daily and that's just that's, that's intolerable. We can't have that. Not when there is a product, not a cure, but a product that will help you get your sleep and rest at night. And we, we feel like it will be a, a big breakthrough if we can ever get the VA to go along with our studies. It's like, here you've got the guy that ha- has developed this was a medic, in vietnam and uh so you know he he took plenty of close calls and he is truly a a veteran's veteran and as you know phil you know a a medic when they're in in a hot zone they they do their thing and they should all be respected just like the dust off pilots but anyway not only you gotta
0: love those heroes
1: yeah not only was he a medic in Vietnam but he came back became a dentist and then decided I want more I want to be a doctor an MD so he went back to medical school and he is a practicing dentist and MD and has developed this um and it's a very easy thing it's it's already been not a, his has not been approved yet but the ground that it was based on has been approved for years and years and years with the FDA, and this is—it's not chemicals; it's nothing other than a, a uh, instrument that will help you sleep at night, and uh, we know it works. He knows it works. So, as our people come back from Desert Storm in the Middle East, and if Others are listening that suffer from PTSD. We will be making a very large announcement, hopefully within the next couple of weeks. And uh, then you'll be able to be treated and uh, get a good night's sleep for a change. So, let's talk Desert Storm and Desert Shield. And, Phil, I'm going to let you open the subject up.
0: Well, David, I guess uh, what I... I thought we might talk about today is the, the different services uh, and their contributions um, during the struggle uh, I, you know, I served in the Army and I had some exposure to what other folks were doing um, I know that uh, <clears throat> the, uh the Navy had uh, SEALs uh, in there that, that did a, a great job uh most of the Navy personnel that went on the ground, I would suppose, are, are either SEALs or uh, folks supporting the SEALs, um, but, of course, the Navy did a great deal from aboard ships. Uh, they launched uh, Tomahawk uh, cruise missiles. They uh, launched uh, aircraft that uh, did strikes, and, um, yeah, they did, did quite a fantastic job, and uh, you know, I was telling you, David, about uh, this uh, Marine uh, Brigadier General. Uh, I believe his name was Kelly, and he did a he did the morning or the the daily briefings at the Pentagon. And uh, you know, things had advanced uh, at that point to the point where uh, we actually had a, a television with uh, CNN uh, in our. Uh, operations center and uh, so we would watch it of course the time difference was significant and uh <clears throat> i i can recall uh brigadier general kelly taking questions from from the audience and he, he tried very hard to uh well to make sure that he, he wasn't uh saying anything that might compromise any of our operations of course he was i'm sure well read in on plans of what we were doing but uh the uh i can recall the, uh, the one reporter asked him about submarines and his answer was we don't talk about submarines and uh then again you know it came up they said well you know are uh, uh, the submarines launching these cruise missiles when well, he just said we we don't talk about submarines <laughs> <laughs> It was like a third time, and he finally said, listen, let me let me help you understand something. We don't talk about what we're doing with our submarine. So if you have other questions, I'll answer
1: them. <laughs> <laughs> Fairly straightforward.
0: <laughs> Suffice it to say, submarines are a very valuable asset to us for what they can do, and we don't really care to share that with other folks, What? What they can do, or what
1: they are doing. Yeah, you brought or what up what they might do. Yeah, you brought up an interesting thing, Phil. In your position, do you feel like that um, there was the you know, and you have your joint chiefs of staff and so forth and so on. But was there the general? Do you feel like there was a general, not only cooperation, but the avoidance of friendly fire or the communication of everybody talking and working together that was needed
0: well you know fratricide or well, you know friendly fire is uh, is a sad thing that, that you know it happened that it did happen in desert storm um, we uh, we had some Apaches uh, shoot up some uh, I don't know if they were American but they I think they were allied. Uh, forces, and, and uh, of course uh, we had some 810s that engaged I think some American forces I mean, so, uh, ground force U.S. Army um, and uh, you know everybody is, is really depressed about that you know, because everybody's on the same team, there at least on our side, you know, and, and we don't want you know, we want everybody to succeed in their part of the mission because it takes the whole team and uh, it just hurts, you know, when when you know there's uh, any kind of fratricide. But I recall uh, they came up with a with a, a method uh, to minimize uh, fratricide and make sure that uh, our aircraft could uh, quickly identify uh, our friendly forces on the ground. And so they had us paint uh, on our vehicles. Sort of an inverted uh, V, uh, like a letter V, and uh-huh. uh, it was just a very simple thing. But we put it on the, you know, the hoods of the vehicles and the tops of uh, other vehicles and on the sides wherever we could, you know, just to mark them and identify them. And uh, as a matter of fact, this same General Kelly was uh, was taking questions, and they asked him, uh, you know, you know what's being done. to to minimize fratricide, and he said, well, we've devised a way to paint these vehicles, so it helps air crews identify them as friendly. And uh, one of the reporters asked him, "Wow, is this some sort of uh, special infrared paint that uh, can only be seen, you know, with uh, certain goggles, and, uh, you know, of course, it's operational security. We didn't want the Iraqis to paint inverted Vs on their vehicles, so... He just kind of sloughed it off and said, "Well, you know, I'm not going to talk about it." Then another one of the uh, reporters, you know, picked up on, on that and he and he wanted to accelerate. It. He said, "Well, you know, is this can can this uh, these this, these these uh, special goggles uh, see these things during the day and the night as well? You know, and uh, you know, of course, there were no goggles and it wasn't what he was <laughs> talking about, but they were." running down the road and feeding on themselves. And then another uh, fellow asked, well, you know, are we supplying our allied forces with these goggles so they can see the, you know, the special infrared paint? They had invented this whole thing out of whole cloth. It was kind of (laughs) interesting to watch them uh, develop this in their own little uh, tiny little mines. Uh, But it (laughs) had nothing to do with infrared paint.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You know, what's funny is now they just, Manufacturer, whatever they want to say, they say. And uh, whether it's anywhere close to the truth or not, or uh, I know it's, what you're talking about wasn't close to the truth, but um, now they just make up anything. Yeah, sure, hope, why not? And hope it flies, you know?
0: <laughs> right. Like a kid trying to put words on a paper for their book report or something, a book they didn't read.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, well, it's it's interesting, and and you know, again, well, let me ask this question of you. And and obviously, we can mandate them to wear masks, but we can't mandate them to join the military. But you know, would you, if I'm going to be a Pentagon reporter, wouldn't it make sense that I'd served in the military in some shape, form, or fashion?
0: Yeah. By the end of your service you probably would uh, have so much contempt for the press that uh, you wouldn't want to be associated with
1: <laughs> very good answer very that was a very good answer and uh, and you're right and it's I look at some of these people today and and uh, they're not they're not news people and they're not reporters they're opinion spouters. And, they're their advocates. Yeah, and they, in most, if not all cases, they don't know what they're talking about anyway. And uh, I get very upset with some of them in that when I was working for a radio station, uh, we, we could not address any issue with our opinion. You know, I could, I could be on the scene of a wreck and would have gotten fired if I'd said, well, it's my opinion that the red pickup came close to running that light and hit that Cadillac, you know. I'd be gone. In a heartbeat. And that uh, just, you know, you didn't, you were a reporter, but you not you were not, you didn't express your opinion about anything. And, uh, I think this is what got us in trouble, even in Vietnam, was uh, Walter Cronkite having too many opinions. Just my just my opinion, but still feel like that. And I and let me ask you, did did uh, during Desert Storm and Desert Show were there embedded reporters with you all?
0: No, I mean, my unit, we didn't have them embedded, uh, and I, I don't know if that was a thing back then. Um, I don't think they would have uh, gotten a very uh, warm welcome at, at my unit. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's sort of a distraction. You know, if you, I mean, you're, you're trying to do your job and uh, sending these people to entertain uh, I don't think so. I know my personal hero is a guy by the name of uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, and uh, uh, during uh, during the Civil War, he actually had a reporter shot uh, as being a spy in his camp. So, uh, <laughs> sort of my sentiment.
1: I I think that would have gotten the message across to any of the rest of the reporters.
0: <laughs> sure, you only have to shoot one of them.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, I better not go there, or some people might think I'm uh, a, a bit of a redneck, which I am. In fact, I'm not even a bit of one. I am one, but you know, and, and this is this is the thing that has always bothered me, uh, and and I particularly came face to face with it in Nam, was that, you know. <sighs> They'd, a lot of times the reporters don't know what they're saying or don't know what they're talking about and don't realize that they've just slipped up and possibly endangered our own troops. And hopefully we kept the lid on it most of the time, but, you know, you never know about some of these folks. And uh, I particularly never liked the idea of Having a woman reporter in the field or in country. And uh, I think that was, I think that's a mistake under any circumstance, personally. But, um, you know, so it's something that we have to deal with now that we didn't have to deal with uh, <laughs> during the Civil War.
0: Yeah. Well, we had very little electronic media during the Civil War. Um, you know, I think uh, folks have gotten to the point where they expect uh, warfare to be as simple as, uh, as pushing buttons and playing video games, and uh, it's really not. In fact, uh, I'm going to have to go back to my, uh, my hero again, William Tecumseh Sherman, who at the end of his memoirs, talking about lessons learned, he made this statement that uh, any any attempt to make war safe or easy would end in humiliation and disaster and uh, unfortunately that's an axiom that, uh, that holds true today
1: well there's you know this is sort of like after World War II trying to for lack of better words romanticize war and there's nothing pretty about war. There's nothing uh, romantic. There's nothing beautiful. There's nothing, you know. It's war is terrible. And uh, you know, granted, you may find a man or woman that you fall in love with or whatever, and and maybe someday down the road or again, who knows? But there's nothing pretty about war. Just ask one of the angels. That's a nurse. There was a nurse in uh, a triage nurse in Vietnam, or, or jumped on a dust off to go, bring back wounded troops, and this this is, again to politicize this a little bit. This is where I get off with, with our Congress, and I I still am big on every Congress man or woman, should have served, and. You know, the silliest words I know, in my opinion, are rules of engagement. The only rules of engagement is when a man asks a woman to marry him and they get engaged.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, of course there's, there are... uh reasons uh, for these rules of engagement unfortunately uh, all these uh, rules that we come up with are uh, are basically hard earned lessons hard learned lessons and the um, you know one of the things that, that we're looking to do uh, by by making a, a policy over uh, you know how to engage the enemy is uh is to prevent retaliations and reprisals, right? Um, and and uh, and es- escalations. You know, uh, you know, if we uh, beat prisoners, then our enemies find out, and they'll, you know, torture prisoners. And then, you know, they torture prisoners, and we'll, you know, maybe we'll start shooting prisoners. And then, you know, then they'll start, you know. Uh, bombing civilian population centers, or, you know, so we're trying to keep it to, uh, you know, well, somewhat civilized, I guess. But, uh, you know, before they ever send you down range to uh, engage the enemy, you're going to go through a, uh, you're going to go through a, uh, a deadly force briefing with, uh, with the attorneys. And they'll, they'll put everybody in a room and, and brief them about what they can do and what what they can't do. Um,
1: Uh, Phil, with that, let's let everybody think about it, and uh, we'll come back after we have a couple of messages. You're listening to America's Web Radio and remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. And we're back on America's Web Radio with Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we were just talking about rules of engagement. And... Colonel uh, Forsberg, I I certainly understand what you're talking about. However, the one thing that always bothers me, the other side doesn't read them either, you know. And... uh, it's sort of like during Vietnam you know they, they'd they throw their hands up and say we can do whatever we want because we didn't sign the Geneva Convention and um, I think our Congress people get carried away with with the uh, rules of engagement I may be totally wrong and I understand what you're saying there's got to be some kind of rules or then then we become a barbaric world and uh, we saw some of this in Vietnam and we saw some in uh, in the Gulf War as well and it's it's amazing what one human can do to another human and um, and I agree we we need rules of engagement but um, I don't know where they start and stop Have I got you back?
0: yes sir I gotta okay. hit that mute button uh, I was just grateful that they didn't ask me to come up with the rules because I surely would have done a poor job uh, but uh, you know <clears throat> I can recall you know we were talking about the uh, the others uh, or, or what the various services were doing I told you a little bit about the Navy uh, that I know of The I know the Marines uh, they were up along the coast and um, and uh, we used to overfly one of their airfields that was called uh, Jubail. Jubail Airfield was run by the Marines, and um, they had a they had uh, their forces up close to the uh, Kuwait border uh, before any hostilities had broken out. Uh, I think the town was called uh, Al khafji and uh, there were some. Uh, some Iraqis came down with the uh, with the turrets of their uh, of their vehicles uh, turned uh, backward, and uh, as if they were trying to surrender. And of course, the Marines let them come through because of you know rules of engagement. Well, you know, the the, the reason for the rule of engagement? is so you know you can make it possible. You know, if your troops have to surrender, that uh, they can surrender in, in some relative safety. But of course, uh, this was nothing but a uh, you know a ruse from the from these Iraqi forces. That you know, can, uh, as soon as they got inside the lines uh, of the Marines, they uh, swung their turrets around and began uh, firing. You know, at which point you know, our, uh, our forces took them out, the Marines made short work of them, but, uh, you know, that, that's an example of, you know, what, uh, you know, why we have these rules of engagement. So you, you can actually have a, you know, a, a surrender if, if that's what you need to do. And, uh, so, uh, You know what? What they did in effect was uh, by by doing this, it made it nearly impossible for any of the follow-on Iraqi forces to actually, you know, surrender with any degree of uh, certainty that their uh, their surrender would be uh, honored. And uh, you know, and I'm sure you know Saddam didn't want any of his uh, forces surrendering, or didn't want to facilitate that at all, and so. You know, that might have been just fine with him. Uh, but it's, it's not really the way that we're supposed to prosecute wars. And, uh, but the Marines did a fantastic job. I remember at the, these briefings, the, uh, the uh, uh, General Kelly, uh, Brigadier General Kelly for the Marines that was doing the briefings, he, would, uh, he was questioned one time about the Marines doing an amphibious landing, uh, on the shores of Kuwait, and uh, they really, you know, I mean, once you have your Marines there on the ground, there's no point to doing an amphibious landing unless you're trying to do some sort of a Hollywood uh, thing or you know <laughs> get some good photos. Uh, but they they continually, you know, promoted this idea that the Marines were going to do an amphibious landing. The Marines were already on land, so. Uh, the uh, we found out that the Iraqis were terrified of the of our Marines because they thought the Marines were going to exact a vengeance on them for the uh, uh, bombing of the uh, barracks in Beirut, Lebanon, that had happened in 1983, which was uh, I guess about seven or eight years earlier. And uh, but that was not the plan. So. Uh, all the Iraqis were kind of facing toward the, the Arabian Gulf there. And uh, so I think we used a few SEAL teams to simulate uh, Marine amphibious landings. And uh, meanwhile, the Marines just drove up from the south uh, without much resistance. And uh, they, were, they were reinforced with uh, one brigade of uh, M1 tanks from the uh, 2nd Armored Division uh, when we left Fort Hood. They, uh, they were in the process of uh, demobilizing the 2nd the armor Division or, or you know, uh, they were going to roll up the flag on that division. And uh, so they had one brigade left, the Tiger Brigade. And we, we got told, you know, show up in Saudi Arabia with all your combat power. So uh, that brigade from the 2nd Armored Division, they went along and uh, they were presented to the Marine Corps. And, or the Marine uh, forces there, and they so said, "Here's your here's your M1 uh, tank support." So uh, they've uh, the Marine Marine Forces uh, Central Command uh, basically come up the uh, that east coast uh, from the eastern Saudi Arabia coast up into, into Kuwait. Uh, they took Kuwait City and Kuwait Airport. Um, the Air Force. Uh, Air Force were big players over there Uh, um you know the air assets from from the Navy uh, and Marine Corps were also uh, big players they uh but uh I I think the first day of the air war uh we had already mapped out where all their uh, radar transmitters were and and critical radio transmitters so that was the first thing to go uh but, you know, um, when they knew our, for- our uh, aircraft were on the way, they basically bugged out the entire uh, Iraqi Air Force to go to Iran for some reason. I'm not exactly sure why, but <laughs> a country they had been at war with for something like 12 years, uh, and they landed their aircraft there. Meanwhile, we took out all of their key communications and radar uh, transmitters so that... They couldn't see and they couldn't talk. And uh, and I recall uh, flying missions uh, whenever I did have a day mission, uh, which was not often, but I would see uh, contrails coming from Diego Garcia out in the Indian Ocean. Uh, the Air Force uh, B-52s would come, and they'd come in uh, a flight of three, typically, uh, and I just count the contrails. Of course, the B-52 has, uh, I think, eight engines. So, what's that, eight times three? You got 24 <laughs> engines running three aircraft up there, making these condensation trails through the sky. They're pretty easy to spot. I can recall turning to my uh, right seater while you were flying, look up, see those contrails, and I just look over at them and say, somebody's going to get hurt. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they dropped an awful lot of ordnance from those things, and they, they were not dropping blind because we had found all their, uh, with side-looking airborne radar, we had found all of their uh, troop concentrations, uh, their main supply routes, and their movement uh, times uh, during the day. And uh, so we had them sort of well pinpointed. Uh,
1: Did they have any defense at all left?
0: You know, they had, uh, you know, some anti-aircraft artillery, you know, guns and stuff. But, uh, you know, without radar guidance, it's pretty easy to uh, sneak up on them. Uh, So that by the time we launched the ground offensive in February, um, you know, we had basically eliminated their ability to communicate and to see uh, and to move, and they were beginning to surrender in mass. Uh, and then, uh, so I covered the Navy and, and the Marines and, uh, and the Air Force, and uh, and the Army actually uh, also played a little bit in there. <laughs> we, had, uh, you know. we had the 18th uh, Airborne Corps, uh, which had the far western uh, edge of uh, our battle area and they uh they kind of rolled up uh the, the iraqis like a uh clockwise wagon wheel rolling from <laughs> about the nine o'clock position to the 12 o'clock position uh and then uh so but as i recall to the to the far eastern part we had the marines then we had a a, a group of uh, coalition uh uh, Arabian forces, Saudi Arabia, Syria, um, uh, I can't remember who else. Egypt, I think, might have been part of that. And then uh, and then we had the 7th U.S. Corps that had come down out of Germany. And then we had the 18th Corps uh, to the far west. And of course, the 18th is, is known as the 18th Airborne Corps. And at the time, they only had one mechanized infantry division in the whole corps. That was the 24th Infantry Division out of Fort Stewart. And uh, but uh, to the 18th Airborne Corps, they had added uh, uh, all sorts of uh, forces, like I think the might have been First Cav Division, uh, maybe First Infantry Division, uh, just. Just a whole slew of stuff uh, that was normally in three Corps. By the time they were done augmenting 18th Corps, they were no longer 18th Airborne Corps. They were more like 18th Armored Corps.
1: You uh, know, Phil, I want to stop you for a second, and we've never really made this point, I don't believe, but for those folks that are listening that served in Desert Storm and Desert Shield, um, if you have questions or you want to add something to what phil has said or if you have something you'd like to make note of or just have a question about desert shield or desert storm just email gm that's general manager gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll be glad to pass it on to phil or we'll find an answer or if you'd like to call in and tell about what you did at De- in desert shield and desert storm we'd be glad to hear from you and Again, it's gm at americaswebradio.com, and uh, we, we really love our veterans, and um, that's why we support the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, and uh, Rick White, Colonel Rick White, retired, does just an absolutely marvelous job (laughs) marvelous as i i forgot who that actor was but anyway he does a great job and uh if you haven't been to it then you need to go to it same way with the wall that heals in john's creek georgia at newtown park if you haven't been there and you're a vietnam veteran or you know someone that was in vietnam go to the wall and uh Anytime we crank up and you're listening to the show, always get your get a pen and paper ready, and if you have questions, write them down and send them to us, and we'll be glad to address them on the next show. And um, Let's get back to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Phil Forsberg and talking about Desert Shield and Desert Storm and the... Things that he saw there, and the things that uh, we might have, you might have a question about. Uh, I've forgotten whether it was you, Phil, or somebody else was kidding about. There was there was a beautiful girl behind every tree in. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah,
0: that was me. That was our the saying in our unit. Uh, but uh, they just had a very a drastic shortage of trees there in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> um, so. Uh, yeah, and you know, on your point there, uh, uh, David, regarding, um, you know, what, uh, if people have questions or if people want to uh, call me a liar or something, you know, I, I'm just saying things as I remember them, and uh over 30 years ago, and uh, you know, one of the things I contracted in the Army is uh, the CRS, which is, uh, can't remember stuff. So, uh, I might add a little different uh, uh, acronym too. I'm not sure, well, but anyway, uh, yeah, I'll be happy to uh, engage uh, any questions that folks have uh, regarding this because uh, uh, maybe it'll shake something loose. Well, you, you know, I, uh, I didn't quite remember correctly. the
1: The point of the story really is the fact that no war, no life should be forgotten. And men and women gave the ultimate sacrifice in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And yet, most people today, 30 years later, you ask them, why did why did we go to, what was the Gulf War about? Why did we go over there? And why didn't we clean it up at one time? And... Most people couldn't even tell you what Desert Shield and Desert Storm were about. And uh you know, I I have to laugh sometimes when some of our politicians get so carried away about clean air and all this kind of stuff. Uh they should have given Saddam Hussein a, a lesson on clean air as he was burning all the Kuwaiti wells.
0: <laughs> well that he did. Uh uh, yeah, so uh, that—that's my recollection. We we kind of rolled them up there. Uh, I was very, very, very impressed with the performance of the uh, 101st Airborne Division. They—they uh, they put a hundred Chinooks in the air at one time. Wow! Uh, and uh, I mean, of course, it's more than the division has, so they borrowed them from other places. But uh, the. Uh, they were able to uh, put their entire division 150 kilometers uh, behind the uh, enemy lines. And, you know, if you've got a whole division running amok in your rear area, you've got some real trouble. <laughs> uh, you,
1: and, you, know, uh, you can't scratch fast enough, can you?
0: Yeah. I think to the far west, though, was the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh with uh, they were they had been augmented or interspersed among the, I think it was the sixth uh, French armor division, French Senate Armor Division. There, um, of course, the eighty second. Uh, they're real quick to get there because they jump out of airplanes and they bring a lot of equipment, but uh, they don't bring a lot of uh, mobile firepower, you know, like tanks and armor personnel carriers, and so. They, um, they, their function was to get there real quick and uh, and to make sure Saddam knew if he came any further into Saudi Arabia that he would be engaging U.S. forces. And uh, I really don't know how much action the 82nd saw during that time, but they were a very good doorstop at the beginning, you know, to uh, prevent. Uh, Saddam so from coming south, and uh, everything worked real well together. And of course, uh, I should probably also, you know, uh, point out that uh, uh, one of my, my most amazing things in there of all the new weapon systems that were being used—Apache's uh, and multiple launch rocket systems, and uh, you know, M1 tanks and the Bradleys—and uh, all this fancy new stuff, but, but you know, some of the greatest work I saw over there were by the logistics the folks, providing fuel and water and food and uh, repair parts. Uh, just amazing the the hard work that was done by these folks. Uh, yeah, it was it was nice to see things all working together like that. They really can.
1: What's the old saying? It's night nice or great when a plan comes together.
0: When a plan comes together,
1: sure. Let me let me ask you about the AWACS. I, I mean, I, I think they have just a incredible job of, you know, they're they're directing a whole sky. And what was your experience with them, and and uh, and how they do their job, really?
0: Well, they were real good. You know, typically when we took off uh, to go fly our missions, the uh, one of the after we checked out from the, the airfield we had just left, we would check in with AWACS and we would do uh, what they call a sweet and sour check. Uh, and uh, so uh, we had four different uh, transponders on our aircraft uh, that. Did various things. Your commercial aircraft these days uh, basically just have uh, two transponders, but uh, the, the, these transponders, these four, uh, had four different modes, and they uh, basically would tell AWACS that AWACS would paint with their radar and get a response, and the response, you know, would tell them exactly who we were that we were friendly and what what our mission was and, and various things and uh... so that was a job of AWACS to make sure they were a lot, sort of like traffic cops to find out uh... if uh... if everybody in the sky was uh, belong there and uh... and of course if they uh... if they didn't get transponder uh... responses then they would just get what they call skin paint to get primary Uh, radar return and they would know, okay, well, this this is a bad guy. Uh, And uh, also, we were required to uh, fly these missions uh, without the benefit of, you know, civilian air traffic control uh, and radar separation. So, um, these guys kept us from slamming into each other uh, while we were uh, doing our mission. So, uh, yeah, AWACS very important. Everybody right. had an important job over there. I don't
1: care, whether we, a
0: cook or a truck
1: driver. <laughs> we've had Jeff Hill on a couple of times, and uh, Jeff was a tanker pilot. And um, you know, they always had escorts. Do the do the AWACS uh, fly with escorts as well? You know,
0: I don't know uh, that they did. Uh, you know, whenever whenever we would be in operation, there was something called combat air patrol. And so there were uh, a number of fighters uh, in the air at any time uh, that basically flew like a, a screen. And uh, AWACS didn't have to fly over, uh, over the ground, over hostile ground to, to see the skies over it. They, you know, it had quite a range. So they would generally stand back some and be able to scan the skies, and I think they did their job pretty well, unmolested uh, because of uh, the combat air patrol would prevent any kind of, uh, you know, any kind of intrusion toward them. I did have combat air patrol cover me at one point; that was uh, very, very welcome because uh, there was an Iraqi fighter coming at me, and this was before the air war started, of course. Because afterward. All the Iraqi fighters were parked in uh, Tehran, but uh, yeah. So the uh, the combat air patrol, another important job
1: there. And, uh, and as I recall, uh, Jeff telling us that um, you know, many times he would refuel the, the combat air patrol, as well as you know, he had he had them with him. So uh, I tell you the. <laughs> Uh, tanker pilot. Yeah, uh, that's just thirty-three thousand gallons of bomb. And uh, the boom operator, I give them all the respect in the world. My goodness, uh, flying a a boom is uh, the whole thing is just incredible. And uh, you know, you sometimes wonder about all the research and development that's gone into figuring out how to kill people. What if we had t- turned all of it around in figuring out how to kill cancer?
0: It would be nice.
1: It would. And, uh, you know, I, I pray that someday that, that will happen. And, you know, like we talked earlier, there's, there's nothing romantic, there's nothing pretty about war. It only, I don't know what the purpose is, uh, we've heard all sorts of kinds of purposes for many many years I guess since since mankind there was a reason for it but uh, it's hard sometimes to see it like that and I hope we never get in you know I I hope we don't but I don't I think it's inevitable that uh, we will be fighting again somewhere I don't know uh, but once again Phil you've You've enlightened our audience, and I hope that uh, some of the folks that have been listening will pick up that pen and paper and uh, jot down some questions and send them to us. Email them, gm at americaswebradio.com, and uh, we'll get you as many answers as we possibly can. And uh, if you'd like to be on the show sometime, let me know, and we'll arrange for you to be on the show, assuming we don't get washed out today. But... That's a, that's a whole nother subject, isn't it, Phil? Yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, no, it's, uh, we've had our fair share of a little rain today. But uh, we needed it, so we got it, and uh, the pollen should be at least washed off of most everything. And uh, this has been another super show, and we want to uh, thank, again, Rick White, the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, his support, and uh, also Mike Mazzell and all the guys out at Johns Creek that uh, have been very helpful in having the wall at heels, and we invite everybody to be sure and put and Peachtree Corners, I gotta add that. Alex uh, out there has done a, a fantastic job as well in Peachtree Corners, and i uh, we want to uh, tell everybody how much we appreciate their support. And the patrons that have are supporting us, we appreciate their support. And we will continue to bring you great shows like Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Phil, thank you so much for being on. And we look forward to next week.
0: Thank you, David. Bye. Bye.